0: You're listening to Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio.
1: It may now take more than a long car ride to get you to your second home. It may now take more than a long car ride to get to your second home in some states. It may take a lawsuit. In Michigan, a state with some of the strictest stay-at-home measures in the country, Governor Gretchen Whitmer has also banned travel to second homes.
0: The fact of the matter is, it's still too dangerous to have people just out and about, uh, unnecessarily so. And so we have a pretty strict stay home order. Michigan has the third highest um, number of deaths from COVID-19, and we're not the third biggest state.
1: Lawsuits have already been filed by owners of second homes, claiming a violation of their fundamental liberty and their rights to due process and equal protection. My guest is David Super, a professor at Georgetown Law School. So, can the governor forbid residents from traveling to a second home?
0: Generally, yes. Governors have very sweeping power to deal with public health emergencies, which this is. State law varies from one place to another, but in general, states' public health codes give the governor very broad authority to respond to emergencies. Governors are the primary people responsible for dealing with domestic health problems in our system, not the president, and really more governors than mayors or county officials as well. So in most states, the governor does have sweeping authority to respond to a crisis like this.
1: Some second-home owners have already filed suit against the governor's ban on travel to their second homes. How strong are those claims?
0: I've read the complaint, and I think it's extremely weak. This is something that the Supreme Court has said public officials have a lot of authority to do when there's a genuine emergency, and there's no question that this is a serious emergency. This isn't something the state does all the time. I'm not aware that Michigan has ever done this so I think a court would give them wide latitude.
1: Do they come out and say, I need to rest at my second home? Is there any substantial reason why they have to go to the second home?
0: No, they say that it's a pleasant place to be, that it provides a respite from the hustle and bustle of law practice. My guess is that for most lawyers, the hustle and bustle has died down considerably, but they describe their second homes as pleasant places, but they don't describe anything fundamental about a need to go there or suggest that they're being harmed in any deep way other than not getting the benefit of their second homes and some other places that they want to travel to. They complain, for example, they're not allowed to go to gun stores.
1: In most states, gun stores are considered essential businesses. In fact, the NRA is suing New York because it doesn't consider gun stores essential.
0: And Michigan apparently doesn't either, but again, the Supreme Court has given states enormous flexibility to respond to pending emergencies and indeed have upheld measures much more stringent than these if they were tailored to fit an emergency. The fact that someone thinks a gun store is or is not critical and and that states disagree on that is not going to persuade a judge to second-guess the judgment of the elected officials of that state.
1: Can you tell us about the Supreme Court case that you're talking about? Well, there are several
0: of them. For example, in one case, officials seized and destroyed someone's poultry that they were planning to sell and they claimed they were deprived of property without due process of law. And the Supreme Court said that the government officials believed that poultry had dangerous bacteria on it. It would make people sick and it needed to be destroyed right away. And the court should defer to experts on a crisis like that. In another case, someone was selling pharmaceuticals that were apparently defective and risked making people sick or killing them. And the court again said, this is an emergency. We don't have time for giving people hearings and." Do- a lot of process. We need people in the government to keep us safe and supported. the action.
1: Governor Cuomo of New York said, the policies I communicated aren't worth the paper that they're printed on unless people decide to follow them. In Michigan, I'm wondering, how could they even enforce this? It's
0: a difficult thing to do, certainly if people en masse ignore it, then the government doesn't have the capacity to pursue it. The hope is that the vast majority of people will understand that we're in a crisis together and want to do their part to help by following these rules. And the few outliers can be addressed by law enforcement or by community pressure.
1: Can a governor forbid people from other states from coming into his or her state?
0: Generally not, unless there's a sound public health reason for doing so. If a governor wanted it to hold up in court, they'd need to get some expert evidence that this is actually necessary, which I don't think they'd be able to do.
1: The governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis, has imposed quarantines on people coming in from New York, 14-day quarantines. Is that within his power?
0: I suspect it's not, because that's discriminating on people coming from one part of the country versus another, and the whole point of being a unified country is that states don't get to do that. If he had strong scientific basis for doing it, he might be able to. But this disease is in every state in the union, and someone is just as sick if they have the infection, whether they come from New York or Wyoming. Part of the point of being a single country, being the United States, is that we are all in this together. The Supreme Court has said that the right to interstate travel is fundamental.
1: Thank you so much. That's David Super, a professor at Georgetown Law School.
0: You're listening to Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio.
1: President Trump says he has absolute power to end the coronavirus shutdown.
0: When somebody's the
1: president of the United States, the authority is total. And that's the way it's got to be. The Constitution says otherwise. Joining me is Richard Brafault, a professor at Columbia Law School. So, Rich, what does the Constitution say about the president's claim of absolute power over the states? Well, of course, the Constitution
2: doesn't address anything like that. And there's really nothing in the Constitution that would support that. The president is vested with executive authority, but that's with respect to the federal government president has given really no direct powers over the states at all, except to implement those kinds of powers that Congress might give him. Obviously, the power, president has power dealing with national security and foreign affairs, but for the kind of domestic things that the states are doing—our local businesses going to be open, our local schools going to be open—that's the kind of thing that has traditionally uh, a matter for the states to decide, as they've been doing over the past month.
1: Because it's the public health, do the states have a particular purview over the public health? Yes. I mean, I think the better way to put it, and this is the position that conservatives
2: have always emphasized, is that the federal government is a government of limited powers. It does have the power to regulate commerce. And of course, obviously, coronavirus has a big impact on commerce. But that all the basic powers of government, including power over public health and public safety, are powers that are wielded at the state level until perhaps Congress, if it's used its commerce power, might take something away. But the assumption is that basically all the governing power in the United States starts at the state level. Some things can be moved up by Congress to the national level. Some things have been delegated by the states to their cities. But the key assumption of our system is that the states are the basic blocks of government.
1: Trump declared a national emergency. Explain why that doesn't give him the powers he's trying to claim and what powers it does give him.
2: National emergency is something that basically is something pursuant to various acts of Congress that gives the president certain emergency powers with respect to areas in the federal system. reallocate funds to call into play the Defense Production Act. It does give him various powers. And even in this setting, it might have provided some authority, you know, or when he shut down international air travel or he posed restrictions in international air travel. I mean, Congress can give the president power to deal with emergencies. The irony here is I think the president might have been in a better position to use emergency powers to shut things down. It's not clear he has any particular power to order things up. I mean, if a state decides it wants to close its school system, the president has no power to say it's got to be open. When if a state decides it wants to close its government offices, the president has no power. The state is issuing orders to businesses that you want to close. The president doesn't have the power to say, no, you have to be open.
1: In fact, he didn't even push several Republican governors who were slow to issue stay-at-home orders, but he seems to be trying to save face. Yesterday, he said he was authorizing the governor's to decide for themselves right. when I, I to think reopen. the governors
2: could, could easily respond, we don't need your authorization. <laughs> the governors can pretty much do what they want. I mean, it is true that the president has ways of making governors do what he wants, but not through orders so much. Obviously, the president or the secretary of the Treasury now under the CARES Act has control over huge amounts of money in terms of allocation of, of funding for public health emergencies or other things. The president, and this, this president has not been shy about that, can manipulate who, who gets the funding, who gets the ventilators, who gets the PPE and the masks in ways that favor governors who are cooperative and disfavor those who are not. So it's not that the president has no power. What the president doesn't have is the power to treat governors as subordinates. The president can try and persuade them. The president can try and pressure them. But what the president can't do is actually give them orders to treat them as if they were junior members of his government. That is simply not our system.
1: We did hear the president a few weeks ago. Is it a few weeks ago? I don't know. It's, this seems like it's going on right, forever. It could have been days ago. Exactly. So he did say that the governors who are nice to him are going to be the ones that get what they need, which seems to be just an anathema to the way our system supposed to work. Well, that's
2: certainly true. It shouldn't be a case where political or ideological favoritism or toadyism influences where valuable funds, critical public health equipment and supplies where they're sent, they should be sent based on need, not based on the governor is saying nice things about the president. But, but in a way, though that statement also illustrates the whole point, which is they don't work for him. He used the phrase, I think it was yesterday or the day before, about mutiny, like, you know, the mutiny on the bounty when the crew doesn't obey yes. the captain. Well, that's not this. He's not the captain. Or as Governor Cuomo said, he's not the king. It's not mutiny. It's disagreement. It's disagreement amongst people who have the key power in this area. He can give reasons. He can try and persuade. He can suggest why. He can even direct funds in certain ways to try and persuade or coerce. But he can't order in the way that the head of a department can order a junior in a department to do something.
1: In his presidency, he's already said that Article 2 allows me to do whatever I want. Now, when he was asked at a press conference the other day, who said that you have these absolute powers? He didn't say, but... I wonder, is it Attorney General Bill Barr with his theories of executive power?
2: Well, one has the impression that the president just sometimes makes these things up. I think the president is at his strongest claim, and even then there's a lot of doubt about it, that he can do anything he wants within the federal government. You know, everybody in the executive branch, even then he can't command Congress. The theory that a lot of people, the attorney general, to some extent and others have espoused, is the so-called unitary executive, that everybody in the executive branch works. So the president, and you can't have entities like an independent council or you can't have truly independent executive agencies, and that's debated. But there's no theory that says that the governors work for the president or that the states can be commanded by the president to do whatever he wants them to do.
1: Has Congress basically, through many, many years, been allowing the president to exert more powers, been building up the executive branch to the detriment of Congress I think that's a fair point
2: that Congress has delegated a lot of authority to the to presidents over the years a lot of there's a lot of emergency legislation a lot of wartime legislation that never got repealed a lot of what the president did earlier in the administration in terms of imposing tariffs against products in various countries including our allies he's he's using uh, delegated authority that Congress gave him I mean in theory these were supposed to be based on national security and he's pretty much stretched national security Congress has given the president a lot of authority through relatively unchecked delegations. But even here, it's not clear that the Congress could give president the authority to give the state's orders. The Supreme Court, in cases going back several decades now, has developed this doctrine known as the anti-commandeering doctrine, which says that the federal government cannot commandeer the states to carry out federal commands. The leading case on that was actually a case involving gun control, The Brady Bill, which purported to require local sheriffs to enforce waiting periods and background checks. The Supreme Court said Congress is free to adopt requirements like this, but they can't impose them on local officials or on state officials that Congress can't commandeer governments to carry out their will. And the president certainly can't commandeer state governments.
1: Is this Supreme Court more inclined to support executive power?
2: It certainly has. But I think all the fights that we've seen until now have been the president versus Congress or the president versus outside people, citizens or groups or people trying to enforce legal requirements against the president. It hasn't actually come up that I'm aware if the president has gone against, has tried to impose something on states. And that would be a different set of issues. The court is very deferential to the president and has done so in in civil liberties issues like the so-called Muslim travel ban. The court has been deferential to the president in other areas. States have sometimes tried to enforce federal requirements against the president. But I don't think we've seen a case in which the president has tried to enforce something against the states.
1: I'm wondering about the cases that are before the court. It's a little bit of a detour, but the cases that are before the court on Trump's subpoenas.
2: Yeah. I mean, that's what's your take it's on that? It's hard to say. I mean, that is one where I could see the the court being protective. What's unusual is that this is a case where the president is arguing kind of the immunity of the president, not as an executive, not as kind of institutional president, but the president as a person, me, Donald Trump, rather than the president of the United States. That argument failed terribly. Uh, the Paula Jones lawsuit against President Clinton, where he basically said, because I'm the president, I'm too busy, and this case should be held off until I leave office. He lost that case. But some people have felt that there was more justice to his argument than the court recognized. But even then, these cases, a lot of them are actually not against the president, but against, say, his accounting firm to produce documents. So that even though the president has gotten into the case, it's not clear that it's going to cost him any time or distraction to respond to the subpoena. It's a subpoena that his accountant has to respond to. So, you know, if one looks at precedent. The president has pretty weak grounds here. But, you don't know, it's always hard to predict the Supreme Court.
1: I want to turn for a moment to the Defense Production Act because he invoked it and said, you know, to Alex Azar, okay, use this to get it GM, but it doesn't seem as if he's really used it with the force that he could.
2: So the Defense Production Act, I think, goes back to the Korean War and reflects practices that occurred during World War II, although I don't think it was on the books then, in which the president has, during a case of wartime or national emergency, president has the power to direct uh, major manufacturers to uh, stop making consumer goods uh, and to divert their, their capacities to making war material, it would have been, you know, uh, tanks instead of cars. Uh, in this case, it would be to produce um, uh, ventilators or other other valuable equipment that hospital needs to deal with the current crisis. Um president first said he didn't want to do it and then he finally got pushed and as, I, as far as I understand he basically as and you're right he's asked he himself doesn't give didn't give an order he gave an order to his one of his cabinet members to give an order. My understanding is that the one thing he ordered they were already doing uh and so they had already said they were retooling uh to start producing uh ventilators and and other equipment. So it's not clear that he's I mean he makes um kind of made a big show of that at the time, but I don't think what he did actually had any significance other than maybe symbolically.
1: Explain the difference between what a president can do under the Defense Production Act and what Harry Truman tried to do during the Korean War with the steel mills. Right. Um
2: so the 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 so-called steel seizure was a situation where um so during during the Korean War, uh, and there was uh, a dispute, actually, between the steel manufacturers and the unions, uh, and they reached a stalemate. And uh, Truman, I think, basically, being somewhat sympathetic to the unions in that situation, basically said he was, he was going to uh, seize the steel mills. Um, as a matter of his wartime authority, because it's a Korean War, and to avoid a strike, to avoid, right, that, the theory was that, um, that if the, the negotiations between the manufacturers and the union broke down, there would be a strike, and we couldn't afford a strike during the middle of the Korean War. So his plan was to seize the mills um, in order to make a settlement with the unions to avoid a strike. That was the basic idea. And that was challenged by the steel companies, and ultimately the Supreme Court uh, said the president lacked the power to do this. This is the, that it was Congress had not given him this this power, and and sort of not even close. They said so there were certain things where Congress has explicitly given powers. There were certain things where maybe it's implicit in what Congress has done, and there are certain things where there's just no support for it. And basically, the president just simply did not have this does not have that inherent authority uh, to. See, steel mills. The president may be the commander in chief, but that doesn't make him the commander in chief of the domestic economy. Um, and you need to have uh, some clear or at least implied authority from Congress to do this. But the Defense Production Act does give some authority. Um, and so um, it might be, and he, you know, he he can invoke it for certain purposes, and that would be the the basis for it. Uh, but you know, the court, uh, I guess, at the time of the steel seizure case, uh, the president was not relying on the authority. And also, here in the Defense Production Act, the president isn't seizing uh, General Motors auto plants. He's basically telling them to redirect what they're doing. So it's a less, or he's asking, he's asking them, asking somewhere between asking and telling. It's, it's a less dramatic intervention than what Truman
1: did. Thanks, Rich. That's Richard Grafault, a professor at Columbia Law School. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcasts. I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg.